Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Jessica Miller. It's August 31st, 2023. We're at Hollow Oak Acres in Sherwood. Jessica, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, first question, as you know, why wine? So, it's uh, a great question. Uh, <laughs> I, I started out, um, like, in college, my senior year. I was, I had too many credits, and so I was, I knew I didn't want to graduate in my I didn't want to continue in my major and so I was taking all of these classes trying to figure out like what I could possibly do with my life and the school I went to Boston University had a school of hospitality and one of the things that they had was um, like a, a, a wine class so they had a series of classes on wine and um, yeah, I was just taking all kinds of classes. I took that, I took scuba diving, I took astronomy. I was like looking at maybe going to grad school for philosophy. I was just kind of casting around for anything. And then I took these wine classes with some friends and I had always really loved um, like geography and traveling. And then I, you know, had just really started getting into food systems and agriculture. Um, and sort of like like Michael Pollan's Happy Meals had just come out in the New York Times. And so I was just getting really interested into like equity and labor practices and how that integrated into the food system and agriculture. And so it kind of all came together when I started learning about wine. And then, yeah, there's just, I don't know. I, I loved how this, you know, you can have cultural expression from different places across one medium, across wine, and then just understand a place and like the traditions and the culture and the food Mm -hmm. through this one subject. So that's how I got into it. Um, Or I I got interested because my family, like I don't come from, I'm from Minnesota. I don't come from like a wine drinking family. I don't come from like an alcohol drinking family. (laughs) They're not like anti, but it's just, you know, we just, it wasn't part of our lives. And then, yeah, so that's, I started taking that class and then um, I was like, hmm, maybe this is like something that I want to pursue instead of like eight years of grad school, uh, which seemed like a long time at the the moment. And um, so I took, my summer after graduating, I took, I, um, was it the summer after graduating? It was two years afterwards when I was still kind of struggling between going, I was kind of getting ready to go to grad school and I was like, I'll just go take a, take a harvest. Um, I had had a bunch of friends that had been woofing, like worldwide working on organic farms. And so I was like, I got on, this is how old I am, I was on the email server, like the server list for the Italian uh, like woofing list and then I like search you know like Google had just come out and I was like searching through it for keywords for wine so I just found all of the domains that like were that were wine related and I applied to them from Minnesota and then just found what somebody that was gonna take me and that's how I ended up working my first harvest 
Um, so that was in Italy near like Orvieto, but it was sort of Montefalco grapes, so like a little bit northern, like so no Sagrantino, but Colorino, Sangiovese, Merlot, because they, like the couple that owned it, had really gotten into Merlot when they went to their wine school. Um, and what year was that? That was 2010. So yeah, I graduated in 2007. Um, I actually worked at a wine shop after um, back in Minnesota while I was taking like classes to go to grad school. Uh, my part-time job was at a wine shop in Minnesota, which ended up being really, really handy later on. Um, so that, and then I, I was just like, ah, let me just go once and see how I like it. And I loved it. Um, I don't know. I didn't grow up like loving nature, being like outdoorsy. I was just like reading all the time. So when I was a kid, I was just like, I was just indoors reading. And then my mom was like the nature person and we would go on like hikes and stuff and I'd be like, all right, fine. But yeah, then I got, I don't know, after that experience, I don't know. I just, I do like being outdoors and I was just like, oh, this is amazing. Like you can learn and like observe all of these things that are happening with plants and like also just be able to be outside. And most vineyards are not bad places to be. Like the view is usually pretty good. So I was like, all right. But then I, I you know, I still was like, well, how, what do you do for a job? And I had, they had had an agronomist come during harvest and help them with the fermentation and sort of give them advice on planting and, and things like that and do site selection. And so, because the, the class that I took at, you know, at university was, it was much more designed for like hotel management or like restaurant buying. So we got a really thorough, it was like a W site, like you got a really thorough um, background in like the qualities of wine, you know, the categories of wine, and then like the regions that it's produced, but not necessarily like a primer on like the industry or like the different jobs that people have. I like, I had no idea, right? That was the first time I had seen a vine was in Italy. <laughs> like, so yeah, so that like, then I was just, I, I was living, I was living in Germany. I was working like a translator job because I had wanted to live abroad and I was just trying to figure out how to go to school for wine, basically. So, or, or cause I was like, oh, I have to get a degree for this for sure. Like that's absolutely necessary. Um, and then like, I didn't see like owning land or having my own project. I just did not see that as a, as a route or an avenue at all. Um, because you have to have tons and tons of money to do that. And like, I, you know, I don't come, like I come from a privileged position, but for sure, like my parents sent me to college, but like, that was not, like, that's not our family. <laughs> so, um, so I was like, oh, I'll be like a consultant. I'll be this like person that comes and like helps, you know, maybe do site selection or, um, look at soils. And, you know, I was really interested in terroir and how you find, how you find places to plant. And so I was working in Germany and I was applying to school in France um, because I, like Isabel Newland, we've interviewed, she went to the Safe Pepe on Bone. And I went and looked there and I was like, okay, I think this is like a, it's like a working person's 
education, but I want to do something more like consulting mm -hmm. or like, you know, viticulture services. And so I looked at the, there's an institute in Dijon at the university there called the Institut Julguiot, and they have like a master's degree in um, viticulture specifically. Cause I, I was, yeah, like the wine side was not, I mean, I like wine. Like there was a tasting class that I, I worked my way up to it at school so I had taken the wine class and then at the wine shop I had been working at I had been included in like in the buyer's tastings but the wine was like you have to be indoors right <laughs> and I was like the part I like is outside even today like I you know that's that's I do really like that side and I like the plants I like working with living things a lot um which ferments are arguably alive too but um so yeah, so anyway, so I, um, I was working in Germany and I was trying to, I translated my diploma. I did all these things to apply to the Institut Guillaume. And then um, after like a year's worth of applications, they rejected me. <laughs> and I was like, oh no. Like, and they were like, yeah, you have to take, like you were missing one chemistry credit. Cause like I, I did not have a, a Bachelor of Science. I had, I, I studied international relations um, and you know, this is like poli-sci and history. I was like, I don't have, very, I, the chemistry and biology I have is like, it's old, it's from high school. <laughs> so it's, they were like, so, but they were like, yo, when I first applied, they were like, yeah, it's fine. And then when I got rejected, they were like, no, no, you need to go back for one semester, but then reapply. And I was like, I hate you. <laughs> like, oh no, like, what am I gonna do with my life? I'm like, 26 and like oh my life is you know like nah it's like over I'm getting so old and um yeah it was great I was so I was in California visiting family and then I just was like you know what I'm gonna see if I can find a job here like harvest is coming up it was June June July and um I just cold called um Kermit Lynch wine merchants so they're an importer French importer in in Berkeley and um I had uh, like I had just been working at a really lovely shop in Minnesota and I, you know, the owner was, you know, pretty good about like, as far as you could, like in Minnesota in like 2009, introducing people to different books, to different portfolios. Um, Cause you have like the really big ones and then you have like the smaller ones like Dressner and Kermit Lynch. And those were pretty much the only two that existed at that point in, uh, in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, as far as like quote unquote natural wine, but I just, I didn't even know that that was a thing. Like it was just small wines and I knew I really liked, I really liked the wines that they brought in and I, I loved the way that they talked about them. Um, like I read the Kermit Lynch newsletter and a little bit of the Dressner blogs, but I just, the Kermit Lynch book was just a place where you could find like Lacadette wines and, and these just, these things that seemed like kind of special, like they just had a little bit more soul going on. There's just a little bit more, they're quieter sometimes, mm -hmm. but then, um, yeah, there's just, there, it's, there's more, sometimes with the quieter you are, the more interesting things get. Um, and yeah, so I was like, whatever, I'm in California. I had like learned that you can cold call people from like my college like job <laughs> fair. They were like, you just do a, do a, what is it called? Informative interview. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, 
fine, I'm gonna just ask that because I don't have any other options right now. I had no plan B. And so I called them and I was like, can I do a, an informative interview? And they were like, sure, come on up. And so I borrowed my friend's car um, that I was staying with and zipped up to Berkeley and met this guy, Jonathan Waters, um, who was the wine buyer there for quite a long time. He was the, um, is that right? He's the wine buyer at Chez Panisse as well for a minute. Um, and he was just amazing, like super generous with his time. And I had said, oh, I'm thinking about taking a harvest gig, like just, and um, he's like kind of felt out like how much experience I had, which was like not any. And then he was like, don't do that. He was like, you're gonna be, so you're gonna be hired, but then you're gonna be, you're not gonna have a job like in two months because they're gonna hire, if they keep anybody on, they're gonna keep people as experienced seller hands, um, not somebody like super green and fresh. And he's like, what I would do if I were you is, you know, because when you tell people you lived in Germany and Italy, he was like, are you gonna start an import company? And I was like, hell no, like I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, so, and then he was like, okay, well, where you are, what I would do is get a shop, get a job in a retail shop and taste as much as you can. Like taste and taste and taste and taste. Um, it's not gonna be like high paying, but it's gonna be very stable work and you can have access to understand really the wine world and then who you specifically wanna work with based on, you'll be able to get to a point where you, based off of tasting, a wine, you can know how it's been made and how it's been farmed. Um, and I was like, huh, all right, I believe you. Like, you seem like you have a lot of experience. Um, and that was just like possibly the most amazing advice to get at that point in my life. Like, it just totally changed the trajectory of where I was going because I was just like, you know, I didn't have a clear view, or I, I just didn't have that depth of what the wine world was like and where the different quality levels are. I mean, there was bulk wine and other wine. And like, so that was, I basically, I followed that advice almost to a T. Oh, and the other thing that I did in that interview, which I think I would recommend everybody does, like if, if you're ever trying to get into any industry or just get to know people is just say, oh, this is so helpful, thank you. And is there anybody else that you think I might, might be willing to talk to me or that would be a good person for me to talk to as I like try to find a job or find a, you know, just to get to know the industry. And then, and he was like, absolutely. And he gave me like five people and his name was just an amazing, like I really chose the right person. Cause like you mentioned his name and you know, people like to do colleagues favors. That's what I've learned. Like they, you know, if you say, oh, Jonathan Waters sent me over here, you thought, you know, if you have time, like, it would be great to meet up, I'll buy you coffee, and I just, I'm just trying to get some direction. And um, I ended up meeting, like, half the Bay Area, like, wine reps and, or distributors and importers in, like, a month. It was, because I didn't have a job. I didn't have anything else to do. I was also panicking, because I was like, ah, I need to, I need to work. And I got a job within, like, two and a half weeks for a really nice store, and then spent the next two years in San Francisco and I mean it's awesome there's trade tastings they buy out you know they rent out restaurants and you can taste a whole portfolio in a day or like you'll, you'll taste like all the wines of you know the northern Rhone that they have in a day or um, you know it's just there's really no affordable way to get that kind of tasting education 
and the boss that I worked for, Jim Mead, had owned a shop in Atlanta, and he had been working in wine for 20 years, so he, like, he, I mean, he didn't really need, to, he was like, I don't need to taste, like, the Frederick Waldman, like, Burgundy portfolio for this year, he's like, I know, I know what I want from that, but you have no idea, and I'm going to bring these wines into the shop, so he just sent me, I took my bike across town in San Francisco and, like, tasted over the morning and then came back, and then he was like, okay, what, what did you learn, and, like, what, what did you like, um, and why, and what was a good price point, and, so that was like, having a boss like that, that was that generous and could afford to be, was just like, I learned so much. I learned so much so quickly. I was really hungry too. Um, and then I went to another shop after, after that, and that was like, I also learned quite a lot. I came in knowing a decent amount, but then like the level of all my, I actually had colleagues, because at, at Noe Valley, Jim's shop, I was pretty much opening and closing and working six days a week. It was like pretty much me. And then I went to a place where I had colleagues and like it was a little more cutthroat. Like the, and so then there was like this peer pressure to really know what you're talking about, which I think was a thing when I was learning wine. It's less now, but to really know and own the information, um, I got from Oliver Macron, who's a wine importer, and I told him I worked in Italy, and he was like, what AVA, or like, what DOCG? And I was like, I don't know. I was like, it's north of Rome. And he's like, no, you have to know, like, if that's your experience, you have to know that. You need to know and be able to own that information in order to have any credibility at all. And that's your responsibility, especially if you're selling wine, is to, you know, if you don't know something, that's also fine. Like, you can say, you know what, somebody asks you a question, don't don't make it up, but like, learn it so that if somebody asks you that same question, you have the answer. And that kind of like almost East Coasty, or it's like there's a there's a professionalism, I think that I learned in the Bay Area that I really respect, and I'm really happy to have been in that climate at that time in wine, because um, like natural wine was just kind of starting, um, and. Yeah, it was it was a great place to be, and then I left. <laughs> well, before you left, before you leave, what's what's I want to follow up there. So you mentioned being hungry and learning a lot. So tell me about that kind of learning for yourself. What did you? What were you finding yourself attracted to in the wine world, and what were you finding customers and other people who you were interacting with uh, excited about? Yeah, so customers are interesting back then. So uh, Noe Valley is like a neighborhood shop. Um, they, the two owners were amazing. So when I interviewed there, they asked me like, what are you interested in? Basically the same thing. And I said, well, I took like a bicycle trip to Burgundy with my ex who was French. And you know, we just like camped for two weeks and like traveled. I had no idea, but I was like, I like Burgundy. <laughs> Cause I took a camping trip there. And like, I do love like, you know, I've always loved just like, like, acquiring knowledge it's like a little bit like a I don't know a troll or a dragon I'm just like ah, I want to know like every single crew that there is in Burgundy this will be great and like it's super useless but like unless you have like a venture capitalist that needs to build their cellar and then you're like <laughs> set for the year <laughs> um, but um, so they, they were both Burgundy nuts like the two owners of uh, or the you know their business partners at Noe Valley, Jim and Rebecca Rapaski. Rebecca had worked in Palo Alto and she had basically built cellars for venture capitalists. So she 
has this burgundy knowledge that is unrivaled, I would say. I, I mean, she would ask for cuvées that the reps didn't even know that the winemakers made. You know, it's like a little like half barrel that of something that should be a premier crew and isn't. And that so watching that was kind of amazing. Um, but then Rebecca was also so she was doing a lot with Dressner and was um, she she has a sort of classical taste which Jim definitely shared. And he grew up at a time in the 70s where like things were volatile very much on accident, you know, and he watched wines get clean over the 80s and the 90s and then become pretty, you know, there's definitely a selection of wines that are fairly industrially made. Mm -hmm. um, and so he was watching the, these newer wines with, with like perceptible levels of volatile acidity come, start to come back onto the market while I was at that shop. And Rebecca was like, yes, but like this is an enjoyable wine. And, the, you know, this this volatile acidity is... Like the wine is enjoyable, you know? And Jim was like, yes, but there is volatile, he was almost Australian. He was like, yes, but there is volatile acidity. And so watching the two of them kind of, it was like a little Petri dish, like a microcosm of the rest of the wine industry in, um, you know, in the Bay Area. And it was very interesting. Jim, as a business person also, um, you know, it was, amazing to watch him i mean he balanced his checkbook like california is not a cod state so you can um when people bring wine in that you have 30 to 60 days to pay your bills um and georgia where he had had shops was cash on delivery so he would write checks when wine came in and everybody was like freaked out but it meant that he balanced his check like as a small business owner he paid his bills and that meant he also like watched every penny and like he took every discount every sale that was offered he had that in his mind and that was a huge influence on me to watch somebody be a small business person and I mean I don't know if you know anybody in the restaurant industry but balancing a checkbook balancing a budget paying your bills on time is like really not a hallmark of the wine industry but it can be done and, um, you know, and so that was, you know, and Jim doesn't come from deep pockets, you know, like he started as a, as a stock, he started stocking wine shops. And so he has this like Irish Catholic blue collar background that, you know, he, over the course of his career and like, you know, what happened in wine in, in the 80s and 90s with the Robert Parker scores meant that you could buy 40 cases and you could sell them in two days. And so that the economic boom that happened in the wine industry, I mean, he was very much evidence of that. And and just how much you know, everybody hates Robert Parker, loves to hate Robert Parker. But he made a lot of people like a lot of money and he introduced a lot of people to wine and he got a lot of people into buying new wines that they hadn't tried before. And also, like, there's a level of economic stability for people like Jim that was like amazing and then like he ended up being able to open a shop and hire somebody like me and like it's all like an ecosystem you know and so that was that was fascinating there I mean I so I, I left Noe Valley and I went to Arlequin which is down in Hayes Valley and it's kind of it's more in the financial district and like terroir had just opened a couple years ago which is the natural wine bar and so I was kind of like getting introduced to this and like 
Rebecca had really introduced me to natural wine and taught, they, they would taste with me and they would like with the rep standing like right there, they'd be like, okay, so remember how we were talking about Britannomyces? Like this is Britannomyces or like, okay, so that, that like high note that you're feeling there, that's volatile acidity. Like they did a very thorough instruction on my palate and, and which I think you need to do is taste next to people and, and then point it out so that they can then pick it out. Cause otherwise it's like, it's just a thought, but like if you can taste side by side. And so the shop that I went to next uh, was, uh, I would say not a natural wine shop cause that didn't even really exist, but they had this insane burgundy cellar. It was called Arlequin in Hayes Valley. And that was run by the Levi uh, Strauss family. Um, so like kind of a, a gear change from blue collar Irish Catholic, <laughs> they, you know, old San Francisco money. And they were pretty much running uh, the absinthe, the restaurant, and they and the Arlequin, the wine shop, are next door. And so they're running it like Tour d'Argent in Paris, where they're using, like, basically cellaring the wines for the restaurant in the wine shop. Um, and yeah, just amazing, really highly burgundy focused. And then they would also like have these champagne. Like they'd have a champagne party every year and they'd open like they're, you know, it's all the like stuff you can't even buy now. It's like fr so frustrating, but like grower champagnes basically. So they'd open like 80 sh grower champagnes and like have a tasting. And um, they were really into Beaujolais, like when it was $24, you know, like and all the sort of natural. So like they had built this sort of natural wine book and then they were also bringing in um, I don't know if you've read John Bonnet's uh, New California book, but like we had a, every single grower in that book had come into the store to pour at the shop. So I got to know all of these industry people just from having like pouring next to them and helping like facilitate their event. And then, you know, when I eventually left, I had this just roster of people that I could reach out to and be like, I work at Arlequin, I'm trying to find a job. Can I, you know? informationally interview <laughs> ask if you know anybody that's hiring because I knew that what wines they were making and I knew, I knew based off of how you know what I was learning about their wines you know what their style was what their preference was you know almost everybody was working organically because so that was like the main thing about that second shop is almost every I would say probably every single wine in that shop was uh indigenous yeast because that it, you know that was like a big thing in burgundy and then it kind of trickled into them building that natural wine program is that that was one question that they would either they knew the answer to or they would ask in when you were buying wine is like you know so there was i just ended up getting a palette for a really yeah, I don't know if I got a palate, but like gravitating towards wines with um, very few additives and pretty much all organic because, I mean, it's not that way as much in the U.S. anymore. But back then, like, you know, if you're wanting to use an indigenous yeast, mm -hmm. you're wanting to um, farm organically so that you protect that, that community, that, that population as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, so like, yeah, I didn't come from a place of like really being super into organic farming or really caring. I mean, a little bit, cause I, you know, I didn't like CAFOs and I wasn't buying like industrial meat, but like when it comes to like farming plants, I had really no 
skin in the game. It was just like, I was like, oh, I only like, the wines that I now really only like are coming from places that are only farmed organically. So that's how I ended up kind of in, on that side of the wine industry, I would say. Mm -hmm. It was a long, <laughs> long Bay Area tale there, but it was very formative and I, yeah. It's like kind of, the wine world can be kind of cutthroat as well, like I would say pretty much anywhere, but um, in retrospect, I feel like there's also, there's so many learning opportunities and doors were really open um, to people wanting to learn that, you know, that looked like me, I would say. I would add that little check mark there. But, you know, I think that the Bay Area culture is, is pretty progressive in that way. And still, there was just a lot of expertise there, which was great to siphon off of. So, so yeah. So you had started off the, in the path of the wine shop because you had this advice to go and learn about wine, to go and get as much as you can, taste as much as you yeah. can. Yeah. So at this point, after a few years in it, what were you, what were you thinking about? You, what were you thinking you would do with that? What were you thinking your career yeah. would look like? So I was like, I mean, when you're in it, you're just like consuming all this information. And I kind of got to a point where I was not learning as much as fast because I had just consumed all of like the, the base information and there was not that much in terms of new wines coming in. Like I was starting to taste the same vintages and I was like, okay, I know all these producers and yeah. The Bay Area, the Bay Area is really amazing. Like we get, you know, we had a bunch of New Yorkers come in and I was like, okay, if it's not here, then it's probably not any good. <laughs> that was like the, the mentality that that shop also created was because I, I really had access to like the, the, best wines that were coming into the state and like if you would visit LA or you know people were like yeah they're just nothing down there like they're not they're like two or three years behind us and then the New Yorkers would come and they were like oh you have such great allocations of things because only some fine dining people are buying it and so there's just this like there's this moment where I had always known that like I wanted to go back into production I was just like trying to figure out how and like what did I need to do do I need to go back to school to do that? And after a certain point, I was like, you know what? I had looked at going to Davis, um, UC Davis, to do their, their veterinology program. And I had made friends with, like, um, Martha Stuman is down there. And I was working with Sam Barron at the wine shop at Arlequin. And so, like, him and Sean and Diego, and, like, Diego wasn't there yet. But Martha, I, I kind of was talking to them a lot about their experience there and sort of listening to where they were going and what they were interested in and like what that school actually um, was gonna give me as an education and versus like what I had just gotten as an education. And I don't know, I was like, there's a moment where you are, like hospitality is amazing and what you're doing is it can be super creative and the way that you connect with customers is so important and very fulfilling but I also like I was for me I needed to do something like I needed to create and I wanted to do something and be productive and I felt like I was more or less at that point being very consumptive like I felt like I was consuming other people's work but not necessarily giving back anything um, which you can do for a long time because there's a lot of different wines to learn. But I just, I wanted to create and then like the job got a little toxic and I quit. <laughs> I was like, I basically, I found another job 
uh, it was like late July and I was like, I could find a harvest job. And I just like worked like crazy for six days, called like every person I knew, found a job um, and then quit, like quit the job. And I was like, I just need to get out of here. Cause I mean, there's, there's so much access there to wines that like I can't afford. Like I definitely can't afford to drink that way now. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a, pe a lot of times people get stuck in it because you want to, like, wine is beautiful and it's expressive and it's, it's such a major, it can be the, the one thing or a major thing in your life that adds beauty. And that is, it's reasonable to want to hold on to that. But, you know, I, I just was like, Th that Italian couple that I had interned with, you know, I had said, I want to learn this, I want to learn that, and maybe, and she had said, she was a psychologist, which was a happy accident for me, and she had said, if you want to do something, if you want to eventually make something that takes 30 years to build, you have to start. And you can't, you, you can't, you can't do it in five years. Some things take time and you just have to suck it up and put other things to the side and say, this is what I'm doing. And that has like come back to me for a long time and I really appreciate it. Gala, thank you. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I worked at Sainsbury that year. That was the year there was an earthquake and like all the barrels toppled in Napa. Um, but I moved up to Sonoma, sublet my place and moved up there and worked harvest for the first time since 2010, and that was 2015, yeah. Um, and yeah, it was a kick in the pants, cause like, I had been working hospitality for three years, like I was very verbal, like I was not, had not been used, I mean I had been like moving dollies of wine around, but I hadn't been using my hands, I hadn't been hooking things up, I hadn't been, had to think logistics of moving them back and forth, I was, the skill set was not there. And they were like, oh, you'd worked harvest before. And I was like, yeah, at a place that's, you know, 10 hectares that, or 10 acres that's not even fully producing. And we did everything by gravity because there was no pump. So it was like, yeah, they were very patient with me. <laughs> um, I wasn't the worst intern that they had that year, but they, I learned a lot. And California is very, you know, the U.S. is a very different place to make wine. So, um, you know, our cellar crew is all Mexican and the interns are white and there's, there's a work ethic when you have been working since you were 11 or eight and you've done field work and, you've had, if you, and most of the work you've done is piece work. There is a speed that you move that is very different to like white hospitality labor. <laughs> and like that, so that was, um, but I'm like, I come from the Midwest, like I want to work hard and I don't want to be bad at a job. So like I, I worked really, really hard. I was still not very good, but I was like, okay, this is the level that I need to be at and to not hold other people back or not, you know, to actually be helping some. And so, yeah, I don't know. Their, their cellar master there was like, um, he was, yeah, he was very good at his job and his nephew was maybe even better. Sorry, but sorry. <laughs> I don't think he's gonna see this interview, but <laughs> they're an amazing family and just have an ability to see things moving. Mm -hmm. It's almost like a sports player that can see 
play happening in front of them. It's, it was amazing. But um, he was the first person to tell me don't do vineyard work because it's for stupid people. And I was like, wow. And you know, like that he's telling it like it is. Like he's like, I did vineyard work. It's only people that can't get out of it that stay. Um, which was like so unbelievably depressing to me. And I was like, I'm gonna prove you wrong. Like I'm going into the vineyard and I'm gonna go and I'm gonna stay because it is work that like, it takes just as much brain, if not more than the winery. And you know, that, 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 that conversation I had with him and that perspective on vineyard work stuck with me for a very long time. Um, and I was just like, this is not a respected side of the profession. And I still believe that. Um, I mean, you can just look at how people are paid, but, or like, yeah. So I was out of a job after two months, <laughs> pretty much exactly like Jonathan Waters had predicted, but I had made just a ton of connections working in retail. And I was at a party at Brock Sellers, like a release party. And I was talking to somebody and I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing. And they were like, oh, you should work in the Southern Hemisphere. And I was like, oh, I didn't know that was a thing you could do. <laughs> like, I really have been in hospitality. And so they were like, yeah, yeah, there's like a season down there. And there's a there's winery internships. They start in like maybe February, Hunter Valley. But if you do a vineyard one, it's going to start like now. It's like bud break, like in a couple weeks. And so the I had like zero Southern Hemisphere connections except for um, Ted Lemon who's a winemaker at Literai in California, has a winery in, um, or he was doing the consulting both in the vineyard and the winery at this um, vineyard called Burn Cottage. It was run by some more Midwestern cotton magnets, um, Marcus Savage and his uh, family. And they, and we had, when we had been um, tasted on the Literai wines, they had been like, we have this New Zealand project too. And we are like, oh, we never taste wine from but it's Ted Lemon, so like, okay. And we tasted them and I was like, oh wow, like this is like, these are really well-crafted, this is super beautiful, and these are pretty, you know, this is, and so I knew there was one person who was making quality wine in New Zealand <laughs> who wasn't American. <laughs> like, <laughs> really going outside my comfort zone, but you know, otherwise like we didn't, we don't get any of those wines up here. Like there's a few now in California, but like you just don't see them, so. Um, so I emailed them and I was like, hey, I want to work in the vineyard. <laughs> Can I do that? And like, do you have a vet intern position? And they were like, yeah. And uh, I was like. Was it rasp before? Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. And then they were like, when can you, and then I was like, when can I come down there? And they're like, when can you get down here? Like, you want to start in two weeks? And I was like, I guess so. I'm out of a job like in a week. So New Zealand has an under 30 program. Um, which I'm sure you guys have heard about, but like there's a work visa that is very, it's 20 minutes on, on the like New Zealand government website that's like, I don't know, looks like it's run by Netscape. It's like, you know, it's just this, it's like this is not a real country. And so I was like, I, like half an hour later I had a freaking year's visa to go work in New Zealand, which is somebody who's worked in Germany. It's just like, okay, <laughs> they must really need people because <laughs> it's like, um, but yeah, so I went down to Burn Cottage and I got there right before bud break. And um, I mean, the first day, you know, there's nothing to do before the vines start growing. So we were like, they have water races 
that were constructed to bring water down from the mountains where there's snow through the fields because there's sheep. And so these water races basically like irrigate the fields or give water to the sheep. And they're, they're all still there and people maintain them as well so they can you know, use water. And so the first like week I was there, I was like basically just digging ditches, digging, like digging out water races, like in full rain gear. And I was just like, what have I done? <laughs> like, am I even gonna be in the vineyard? And then, uh, and then it was amazing. I was like, this is, I actually was like, this is the very, I biked to the vineyard before I started working there from my house that I was renting just to go look at it. Cause I was just like, I can't believe I'm here. I'm like, I'm finally doing vineyard work. And I biked up the hill, like to go like see the vineyard. And I like got there and I was like peering over a fence and I was like, oh, this is exactly where I'm supposed to be right now. Like, I just had that, that feeling that you're doing the right thing and that you're on the right path. And like, it just felt right. And I was like, and after that, I was just chill. Even when I was digging out the water races, I was like, it's gonna get better. And I had a mentor there who was like, now I realize just how phenomenally lucky I was. She's just, she's one of the most interesting people I've ever met. She's also has like 15 years of vineyard experience. And she was working as like the like lead manager, but there's like four people on the crew there, including me. And so we were just working together and she just would, talk and notice plants and like look at things and like talk about previous seasons and then just be an amazing observer of what we were doing right then and like <laughs> a little you know she's kiwi so a little bit of a critic so like you know like you know and we had a new vineyard manager that year other they're one that has established the vineyard jared had left and we had a new guy um who had come in from a bigger more conventional vineyard and you know Burn Cottage is like, it's lovely. It's the best biodynamics money can buy. Like it's like, yeah, it's not. And that's where I had learned biodynamics too. Like the first day I had to like sit and like stir a pot. I was like calculating like the labor costs. I was like, we are paying like, they're paying us like, you know, what, $700, $800 right now to sit here and like stir things. Like this is, I was just like the American in me was just like, this is totally insane. Like these people are crazy. Like this is, how can you possibly just justify that cost for a thing that is like, you're basically like putting out a tea. Like there's no concrete, it's very different from pulling a weed out. Like you see what you do in an hour and in a vineyard you do a lot. And like, you don't see anything with biodynamics. And you just, but I, had, I was paid to do it. So I was like, sure, I'll do it. Like I'm paid, I'm paid either way. Like, what do I care? Like they're crazy, but like, I'll do it. And then I was like putting the tea out and I was like, this is really nice. Like, or I was just like setting aside that time to just be in the vineyard and just to see the plants and not to be focusing on your workload, you know, and it's very, it's very much a mind shift away from like empirical Western thinking and thought. And I had enough background around philosophy to be like, oh, like I'm experiencing a gear shift in my mind right now. And that's pretty inherently valuable, regardless of if it's doing anything to the vines or not, I'm changed. And that, yeah, so that was, that was super fascinating and, and lovely. And it was also, 
amazing to see people of different backgrounds really like embrace that. People who were very like crunchy and people who were like surfing and hunting on the weekends were both like very seriously stirring together. And that, you know, after, I think that's something that's really special about it is like, you can bring people who have different philosophies, but then it like, when you do something like that together as a team, it's like people, everybody that was there believed in it, which is like, talk about peer pressure. I mean, <laughs> uh, but it was, I was, I, yeah, it was a very good place to be. Um, and I stayed there for, so I stayed there for a year for an entire growing season. And they asked me to come into the winery for harvest. And I said, no, cause I'm an idiot. <laughs> and I was thinking about that cellar master who was like, and Andrea, my boss, my mentor there, she was a vineyard lady through and through. And she's like, people always leave for the winery. I mean, it's very much that mentality that like, we're, we're second rate. Like we are not the priority. And I just was really indignant and like stubborn. So I left and I, I stayed in the vineyard and I put out compost for three weeks. <laughs> and I was like, and I, and what's crazy is because when you watch those grapes for an entire season, you stay in one place and you just are there eight hours a day and then they're gone. It's like, you have that, it is good. Cause you're like, oh, well, the plant is still here. We still, this is a plant based thing. It's not, the fruit is just part of the plant. Like we want to prioritize the plant, but then I had no, I knew enough about fermentation to be like, oh shit. Like all the transformation I just saw is now happening. It's still going on. It's just not here. It's, and like, that would have been really, really interesting. But it, I did all the sampling for Ted and he's a nut. So I had asked. And so when I would drop off samples, I could go to the lab and hop through and taste the ferments. So. Thank God, because that was like the first time that I was able to really make a connection between like grape skin, tannin, and like final product. Mm -hmm. And that, even just that brief like sampling, because I knew how to taste and like I knew how to sample quickly. And like I had that built my palate in California. So I have a pretty good memory for what I'm, I can, I can get things pretty quickly from tasting them. So, but yeah, it was, it was dumb, but. Whatever. I was I was very stubborn. Um, so yeah, so I stayed in New Zealand and then um, came back to California and worked. At, so I, I had basically done the full season from spring to compost putting out, and then I had done no pruning. I had never learned, so I'd never gone to school for any of this. And I was talking to everybody about pruning all year because all these like interns and like would come from Spain and France and they would talk pruning together. And I'd be like, shit, I have no idea what they're talking about. And like, and so I was like, I need to learn how to prune. So I was like, okay, the next real thing I'm going to do is I'm going to go to France and I'm going to learn pruning and I'll learn with like three or four different people. And in the meantime, I have a summer, I have like a summer season. And I was like, I'll go to California and I'll just work for, you know, somebody that's like, I want to see like what people are throwing money at in California. And so like, who's got the biggest vineyard budget and like, what are they doing? What are the, what trials are they doing? All that kind of stuff. And so I ended up working for Inglenook, mm -hmm. um, which had a Chateau Margaux winemaker there at the time, Philippe. And I, yeah, I did all these crazy, they had like eight consultants. And so I did like sampling for two of them 
on like an ATV, just drive, you know, it basically would just drive the 300 acre property to a different section each morning. And like on a little, eight, like a little four wheeler, like get my samples and then like come back to the lab and like, yeah, I pressed like green grapes because we did so much tannin analysis there. Like they're just obsessed, obsessed with, it's all Cabernet and it's Cabernet and then there's Zin and all these other cool varieties, but they're just so obsessed with tannin and cab and now with all the sun and sunburn. So yeah, it was fascinating. It was like, and I have a pretty good sense of now of like how, how wineries that are at that price point and scale, like what resources they have, what their, where the focus is. Um, but like going from like, you know, Burnick, Burnick Cottage is like what, 20, 25 acres to 300. The level of detail in the farming, especially on Pinot Noir to Cab. I mean, Pinot is just so much more finicky. You can really just like tinker with it in the in the vineyard as much as you really want to. Like, we did like five passes through shoot thinning, or not shoot thinning, fruit dropping in one acre because it was a super high vigor clone. So like. I did the numbers and then they sent the crew in and they dropped the fruit and then I did the numbers and then I went back and then they dropped the fruit again. And then like the third time that they had to go back and fruit, they were gonna like lynch me. It was so, they were, everyone was so upset. Cause it's also like, it just is so terrible to drop fruit on the ground. Like it's so wasteful. And like, and we had a couple, we had one woman that was like crying cause it just, it's just this purple carpet. And it's something that you've worked for all year and it, it just feels so intuitively wrong. So, yeah, I don't know. That, that was a very, very much a gear change to California, which is like all about irrigation. And I mean, everything is run with crews. It's like 20, 30 people. So it's just like, and a lot of them have worked there for a really long time. And, but yeah, I mean, the labor, the labor difference in California was, really hard and I, I don't know things are very much like racially segregated in America in a way that like I don't think very many people talk about um and yeah it was just yeah it was interesting so anyway um like I don't know if you're getting the information you need or not fantastic you're good but um I mean I feel like I haven't even gotten to Oregon yet <laughs> but so I so I Worked there through November and then I pruned and like at three different estates in France. Um, I pruned with the Demours in, um, in, in Chablis. I worked with um, Cloroche Blanche, which had just been sold to um, Julian Pinot. So two like sort of like, just like beautiful, consistent domains. Um, and I knew, I knew that like both of the people that had been uh, Olivier that had been farming um, Demore, or is, is farming Demore, is just a, he's a huge reader. He's a big science nut. Like Drew and I have exchanged like, he's like, in, keeps trying to introduce me to books and I'm like, dude, I read those like four years ago <laughs> in Olivier's library. Like I read it in French, so I should probably read it again in English. But you know, like it was just amazing. Like all the things that like, I feel like are really starting to come in now um, Olivier just like introduced me to um, farming concepts and he's just a huge reader. Um, and then um, the farmer Didier Barouillet at Cloroche Blanche had just done 
really, really cool stuff in terms of like co-planting, um, like, you know, basically insect meadows and um, had done a bunch of ASCA trials and like done a whole bunch of like mycorrhizal work. He was one of the first people to like, to introduce Quad and Lydia Bourguignon. So it was just like super into soil microbiology. And I just, I also really love the way that he talks about wine in general um, and how we, um, you know, what is your responsibility to like, what kind of member of the community do you want to be? Which I think like is really missing with a lot of the dialogue. Like he's, his phrase that I love is like, we weren't put on this earth to divide ourselves into little cults and like, just sit here and say like he's an idiot or they're an idiot because they're spraying this or they're you know because he went from spraying you know he was they had a, like a machine harvester the first year that he was working that's how he ended up with the winery job because the guy who was making the wine had to drive around the neighborhood machine harvesting and he's like I don't think that I was an idiot because I sprayed chemicals like I'm at a plate you know that was everybody's on their own path and yeah, I just think that that, you know, he, even talking about natural wine, it's like you're you're putting this like moral base, this moral judgment on what you're doing and what someone else is doing, and like, like first of all, like no wine is natural. Like there's intervention massively. So I I just really love that ethos, and I also like the farming. And then I was like, plus I'll learn to prune. <laughs> and I'm not going to, I decided I wasn't going to ask for any money because I had never pruned before. So I was like, I'll just, at the very least, I won't be making money, I won't be losing it, but I'll be drinking really well. So, um, yeah, and then the third person I went and uh, sort of by accident went to their domain because I ran out of money and I couldn't go to, I was supposed to go um, see a friend in the Rhone that was working with Eric Texier, but I like didn't have any money, so I just stayed in the Loire <laughs> and I worked for uh, this this other Julian um, who was working for France Simone and so um, Mont Louis they were doing a ton of Chenin um, and like Clovis Blanches like all these other different varieties Pinot de Nice and um, a little bit of Sauvignon Blanc they used to have Chardonnay but they pulled it out and um, Cab Franc and Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, and that, that was awesome. So, and, and like, what it really changed, what that trip really changed, not just the pruning, but like I watched all these people run domains that didn't have money. They didn't come from family money. And I, that's what I kind of, I was kind of percolating in my mind, like, you know, maybe if I do something like, well, I want, I want to go to somewhere where I don't want to go to Burgundy because if I work in the U.S., it's not applicable because we don't have that terroir and also we don't have the history. And, like, I mean, it's funny to say that in Oregon, that Burgundy is not applicable, but I, I just wanted to work with people that had basically self-started um, and that were also not inheriting money and that were maybe on, you know, land that was like those wines are really beautiful not just not because of the limestone like those wines are beautiful because of the farming um which i feel like is really important for a place like oregon it, i just don't think that we have the hit we don't have the time to to do the sort of terroir but i also just don't think that we have similar enough soils to make the burgundy 
comparison to me useful. Um, but I do think that like there's a lot that you can do with farming. Um, and so those three people are just doing like making really beautiful wines and very consistent as well. Like they had had multiple vintages from all three that I, I just never had a bad wine from them. And I knew that they were trying to drop sulfur levels. I knew that they're very low intervention, um, but I knew that they're consistently releasing really beautiful wine. And I was like, all right, that's what I want to be around. Um, so yeah, that, and then I was like planning on coming back to Oregon where I, I had tasted some wines from Johan before I left from France. Um, a friend of mine, Morgan Hall, or um, Morgan Beck, <laughs> now. So she and Lee, um, Lee had, ha had a roommate who um, introduced me to the whole wine world up there. She had come down to the shop I was working at and she was like, we're having a party in Sonoma, like on our, you know, we have this, the house is called the Jungalo and we're having a rooftop party. And they like brought a keg up onto the roof. It was just like a really nice scene down there. And so I had met them in Sonoma, like before I'd even gone to New Zealand. And Morgan was talking about Oregon and they had, pla they were, had planned to move up. I helped them actually move some of their costumes for Burning Man and some of their bikes. <laughs> before I left for France, I had taken a trip up and visited Morgan here and like gone to White Rose and she had recommended some places and I had tasted the wines from Johan and I was like, wow, like the acidity levels up here, the natural, natural-ish acidity levels are just really, um, they're really different to California. And there's like just a ton of potential. So I was like, I was pretty convinced that I wanted to come out here and then I just basically applied to jobs from France um, back here. And one of the people I applied to work with was um, Jessica Cortel. So she needed help. Um, <laughs> And so she hired me as a viticulturist and because I had had the biodynamic farming experience in New Zealand, that was Natanya, Natanya Welch, um, had just left um, after working for her for five years. And so she hired me as a viticulturist with like a special, specializing in biodynamic organic farming. So What year? That was uh, 2016. So I came back Easter of 2016, um, went to... Matt and Kim have an Easter party. And so I like drove up and arrived like at their Easter party um, with like a suitcase in the back of my truck. And um, yeah, started work like pretty much the next day. Um, stayed in Morgan and Lee's loft for like a week and then found a place over um, just like near Hopewell. And yeah, worked for the full season for Jessica. So she at that point was farming like 300 acres so I think that was like, I would recommend it as like an introduction to Oregon because you get like the soils, you get like the different people, the different sizes. I mean, evening land was a hundred acres. Um, Antiquaterra was 10 and then she had, you know, 28 more. And no, she had not 28. She probably had north of 20 clients over 300 acres, but 110, 115 of them were two people. So the rest were really, really small and very far flung. And this actually, this site here was one of them. So that's how I ended up here later on. But that, that first season was um, 
Yeah, it was a whirlwind. I mean, Jessica's going a million miles an hour. Arturo Cabrera, who was her like right-hand man who had been with her from the start, um, he, yeah, he he's an amazing, he's an amazing farmer, tractor driver, logistics guy, like excellent, excellent coworker. So, um, man, I just learned a lot in a very short period of time. <laughs> um, and yeah, and then after that season, I, you know, I was like, all right, like what you're all, like what contract farming does, what they're able to achieve in a season is amazing. It's also like very frustrating for me because I, I like, like, because you're, you're spread so thin. You're spread so thin and like that, yeah, I was like, all right, this is not, like, this is not ideal for me. Like, this is, I, I want to work at a slower pace. I want to spend more time in the vineyards. I want to get to know them better. I want to have fewer of them. I want to drive less. Um, so we parted ways and I started taking these little odd jobs. I had, that was the first year I made wine here because I, Somebody had called me and been like, hey, we need somebody to farm our vineyard for like June and July. You, keep, you can keep the fruit. I was like, that's like three sprays. <laughs> but like, okay, sure. <laughs> um, and so I farmed this little vineyard near Brooks and got the fruit from it and then traded. And at that point I had seen all these people in France. Like I'd seen Julian, specifically the second Julian, Julian Prevel was just like seat of his pants, farming and winemaking. And I was like, if this guy can do it, like, He's so freaking distracted, like, <laughs> like, I'll be okay. Like, I'm also not the most, like, detail-oriented person, but, or, like, I don't thrive in admin work, but, like, I was like, this is possible. When you, once you see somebody do it, you're like, oh, that's what that looks like. And, like, so I traded fruit to Argyle for barrels and glass. I traded fruit for cellar space at Witness Tree. I was telling you earlier, the, I was sharing, I was next door neighbors with Philippe, uh, Felipe Ramirez. And um, yeah, I mean, I basically just did every, and then I wasn't, I didn't, I was on unemployment for like two months. So I was just like, I'm like, whatever, we'll be fine. If I, it's not that much wine. If I, you know, if I can't sell, I'll just drink it. So. Um, all right, so now you, you've been in Oregon, you worked with Jessica Cortell for a year, and now, you're, you're, now you've got this kind of seat of your pants wine project you're thinking about. So tell me about, about starting, to, starting to make that become a reality. Uh, well, so, yeah, it was very funny to watch Isabel's interview because I was like, man, I don't identify with this at all. Like, I kind of just was like, well, fine, you know, I got glass. Um, which was, I was making pet net, so I was like, I need glass. Um, and then, you know, I, man, I don't have, I mean, I have the tasting background, but when it comes to the production background, I basically just have the Sainsbury uh, harvest and then like a little bit of cellar work, which is mostly topping in the winter in France. And so, man, like I've just stayed, I mean, thank God I stayed small because like, <laughs> There's a lot of expensive mistakes you can make when you don't know that like you have to rack Pinot after you press it. Like, I was like, wow, it's getting really reductive and I can't figure out why. Like, you know, it's just really, really dumb mistakes. But, like, it's a lack of experience and like also a lack of probably reading and training. But 
I'm selling myself real hard right now, but um, <laughs> uh, I mean, I think that like I also was, you know, that first year. Um, like how to say this like diplomatically too? So. 2016 in Oregon, there's not a ton of people or not a ton of people that I was surrounded by who had a like a large a large amount of experience with low intervention wines um, or that um, had really tasted a ton of low intervention wines. Like, thank God Felipe was there. He's he's um, you know, our palates are pretty well aligned, but, you know, even not using yeast was like a really big deal for the, you know, for um, the witness tree barrel room that I was then fermenting in. I mean, people were very, and I won't honestly like, I, the, I've been running into this a lot lately. People are very skeptical of not using uh, yeast and we're um, not inoculating with yeast, which it always boggles my mind as somebody who's shared a lot of cellars. It's like, you know, if, if anything, like, I'm the one who's getting your yeast and not the other way around. Like those, those, you know, and lab yeasts are designed to kill and destroy. Like they're, that's one of like, that's why sulfuring with lab yeast is always like so funny to me because it's like those yeasts that you're inoculating with, they're bred to kill everything else that's not Saccharomyces, if not specifically that strain of Saccharomyces. So uh, the culture was very interesting and like, I think a lot of people are very right in saying like very supportive, like very supportive of small people. And also like very, I think there, there's a streak of conservatism as well. Um, and that, that's pretty understandable if you look at like the history of, you know, how the reputation of the Oregon wine industry has been built over the last 30 years. I mean, it's very similar to Cab and Napa. Like it's a lot of people have been fi very financially successful building off of Oregon Pinot Noir and specifically in a certain style and, you know, with a reference point to Burgundy. And um, it's an odd place because it's also, there has been so much innovation here. Um, not that long ago, like in the eighties and the nineties, like I was born in 85, like that's not that long ago, I don't think. <laughs> and like, it really is a whole bunch of like, sort of people flying by the seat of their pants. And then I like, Within reason, like, I, f I feel like that has not continued a whole lot. Um, for sure, when I moved here, um, I definitely, I don't know, people can make you feel like an outsider, but I definitely felt like, you know, people were a little bit skeptical of what I'm doing and that I did it. You know, I think the one financial ad advantage, which is a major one, is that I don't have student loan payments. Um, and I, I really think it's important to talk about that um, because, first of all, I don't think anybody should have them. But I think that that's a major limitation to a lot of people being creative in America. Um, there's also no, like, minimum, there's no basic income, which there is in France. And two of the people I worked with were on it. You know, like one of the people that I knew got a $200,000 loan to buy agricultural land from the government. It, like, 
there's a lot of structural things that make it really difficult as a young person to start your own project without outside financial um, investment, mm -hmm. um, which I, you know, didn't look for, but I also like, I have had a lot of conversations with other friends who are going that route, but I just don't want to give up control. Um, and I don't want to be responsible for someone else's money. I think I will for sure make different decisions than I would make if it's only my own, like, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches I have to eat for a year. <laughs> um, and, and I think that that's really, you know, if you're gonna do that with your, if you're gonna do this with your life, you might as well try to do, make the wine you wanna make and take the risks you wanna take and do it your way and, and, and risk that. Because um, like, life is very short and you don't get a lot of time to do what you want to do. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I've been reading this Pierre Aubenois, um, like interview biography and like part of what he says about the wines that he's making is like, he, he says it like five or six times in this interview. He's like, I'm celibate. Like I don't have, and he means like, he doesn't have a wife, he doesn't have kids. He's like, I never had a family to, to support. That's how I could take so many risks and that's how I could make these wines is I don't have that financial responsibility. And I, I think, you know, I think that that's really helped me also understand like, you know, colleague and friend dynamics in the Valley as well as like, you know, other people are choosing different paths. They're choosing to have family, they're choosing these things and they have more financial obligations than I do mm -hmm. um, and can, I can, I can withstand a lot more loss than most people and a lot more risk, I think, as well. That's just a personality trait. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, I did not... I haven't really planned much uh, <laughs> on this project. Because you were like, what have you planned? It's like, or how did that come about? It's more like it came about. Mm -hmm. um, but, I mean, a lot of it comes through, like, those barrels and the fruit is from Nate Klosterman at Argyle. And I know him because Morgan introduced me to him. And so there's just a lot of those like friend connections that, um, friend, but then they have their business connections as well. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of like goodwill of people just like seeing you're trying to do a thing and being like, oh, we, you know, we have spare barrels or we have, you know, we, we have, you know, this that we can find, or you can call this person and they can, you know, they are renting tanks. There's a lot of that. And having this established wine community here is like, I mean, if you talk to friends on the East Coast, it's like, it's so much easier to be a little peripheral, like bug in this ecosystem and just, you know, have that kind of like access to resources than if you're, you know, if you're in Iowa making wine on Lobstone. Like, so, yeah, so I just, um, I think I got, I mean, it's somewhat skill and somewhat luck because I do have that sales experience. And I, um, when I went to start selling wine, like, you know, I have a lot of things in my way. Like I, I, in terms of like personal blocks that I've set in front of myself, um, like I really want to keep my prices down because part of what I was frustrated with when I moved here is like that, you know, it's not cheaper to drink locally, um, which is crazy when you can drive 20 minutes to Portland. I can drive, I can drive fruit from this vineyard 20 minutes and it's in a restaurant. 
and like that there's so many costs that are we don't have because of being local mm -hmm. that like i feel like you, you know but it, there's other things at play like with pinot noir and where it wants to where people are wanting it to be in the marketplace that make it not an affordable wine it's also not a, it's not an affordable one to grow mm -hmm. especially the way that we do it so yeah so i i was trying to keep my prices low where I like, set, I mean, I set that pet nat at like $22 a bottle and it's like one person made it and vinified it and disgorged it in glasses twice as much. And and then like, I, when I first started selling wine, it was like in Portland, I was like people, I didn't know anybody to call. And I, but I knew I liked what I was making and I knew that it was a pretty good value compared to like what it, I was looking at the list and what was there and I think like the Portland market's very interesting with how they're buying from the Valley. I mean, there's so much Pinot Noir down here. Like, sorry, everybody, everybody knows it's true. There's like a lot of Pinot Noir. <laughs> We're all competing with each other. And like the Portland market is like, is, is depend, like they always want to have a Pinot Noir on the list, but it's like, there's a lot of saturation right now. And so, yeah, so I was like, well, I know, you know, I, um, guy I was dating at the time was friends with a New York distributor, Von Bowden, who works with really teeny tiny producers. And so I um, went back to Minnesota to see family and then one of their business partners uh, lives in Minneapolis. And so we hung out and I poured him some wine and they picked it up and sent it to New York. And then once I sold, like, sold in New York, it became really easy to sell in Portland, which I am like frustrated on behalf of like Portland buyers. I'm like, guys, like there, a, a lot of times you just don't expect things in your backyard mm -hmm. to be, mm -hmm. you know, you think, but I have been that through that too. Like, you know, oh, if I haven't tasted it, it's probably not cause it's not any good. Mm -hmm. So like, it's easy to get close, more clothes, but you know, then since then, I think people are kind of like, I've tried to be really consistent with the products that I'm releasing, which is difficult with PetNat. <laughs> I haven't released it uh, at least one vintage of it. So, um, you know, I, I think if you can keep the quality there and people can, then, you know, that helps a lot. Mm -hmm. So how fully fledged was the, was your idea for the wines you were going to make when you started and how, if at all, has sort of the style changed? Uh, I mean, not really, I, don't, I would say not really fledged out at all. I um, was working that vineyard. I mean, that's the only thing that really I can do is taste um, and spend time in a vineyard. Mm -hmm. And like those two things kind of help me figure anything out. Like I don't, I, I do have wines that like, you know, that I've had that they move me. And like, I love that the way that I feel when I drink them. And so that's kind of like in my mind of like, that's something I want to put into the world is something that like, I feel that way about. That would be amazing. I've gotten close. Um, this like last vintage was really lovely. Like the acidities were just, I mean, it's unfortunate that, <laughs> that the climate has completely changed, but, um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think it's more of a feeling of like a, like a vibrancy, it's an acidity level. I mean, I think 
I'm trying, my fruit is really clean. I mean, that's one thing I've learned with Jessica is like, I don't have a pretty low tolerance for mildew um, and like damaged fruit, um, if you can avoid it. I mean, I do a lot in the vineyard to not spray a lot of treatments on, on the vines. Um, and I try to stop those treatments really early. So the fruit that's coming into the winery is like, I, I've always had really clean and like, um, so no powdery mildew and then also very intact berries. So, which lends itself to carbonic if you want to do it with lower risk. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I also like ideally would rather not be using sulfur at crush, which if you have very clean, healthy fruit is usually pretty doable. Um, so I would say, well, things that have changed in that sense, like pet nat now, I, I've had a couple really tough years. I had one tough year, which is like part of the way that you produce sparkling wine. I was putting it on tip instead of on its side. And so the fermentation was taking a really long time. And so I was, when you, when you have a ferment that takes a really long time, like it gives, there's, when there's residual sugar, it gives all of these other things like opportunity to have fun with that sugar. And that's what that happened. So I have gotten a lot more conservative with the pet nut and I now sulfur mm -hmm. at crush at the press. But you know, it's like six parts, like one gram per hectoliter, but it's enough to kind of take my lactic bacteria population down, give my, you know, my yeast a chance to really like um, finish properly. And then I, um, so like that's one of the wines that I will until I get my own facility, probably sulfur consistently, just because it's, there's so many risk factors with uh, taking a ferment and putting it into a tiny bottle. Um, and you, you wanna do everything that you can to help that finish, because it's also very expensive to make. <laughs> and so we, like, it's just not fun to pour wine out. And yeah, I don't know. It, it's, it's um, but you know, that's, it's a pretty te technical thing to make. Um, but, so that's one thing that's definitely changed. But as far as the reds go, I mean, I've only been farming this vineyard since 2020. So basically 2020, I didn't have a vintage. Um, I picked like three tons and then dropped the rest because I pressed a little bit for rosé and it smelled like an ashtray. I thought somebody was smoking in the winery like cleaning the press. I was like, you know, it volatizes all the mm -hmm. warm water, volatizes all the smells. And I literally thought somebody was smoking a cigarette and I like ducked out and I was like, who's smoking? And then, um, yeah. So I, I didn't make wine basically in 2020 off of here and then 21, 22. Um, so I've only had two vintages here. Mm -hmm. And um, for me, that's like, I'm getting to know the place. I really love the wine that came from the section below the, the hill last year. Just excellent balance in the vines and like the wines are just like kind of startlingly uh, serious because they're only 13, 14 years old. So I'm kind of, that's part of my thought too is like this vineyard, I have another one that's 35 years old that is like very much itself like it has its own character um and i really it's really easy for me to just like it, it's like speaking really clearly mm -hmm. so i can hear that and then go into the winery and like 
Um, and here there's like different parcels and they're very vigorous, very low vigor. And so I'm fermenting some of them separately, some of them together, and then trying to understand like, okay, that's like very bouncy and like bright. And this is very like serious wine. Like there's really nice tannins coming from down here, which I was not really, I like this parcel, I like working in it, but I didn't really know that you could get wine like that off of vines that were this young. Mm -hmm. um, but that's cool, that's great. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just, I don't know, each year, trying to dial it in a little bit more and not make so many little cuvées is another thing. Like I was making a lot of wines off of very little fruit. And I think from a sales perspective, like running a small business, I mean, that is really something that I've had to learn. And I'm still very much learning is um, cash flow and like how do you, you know, the nuts and bolts of making sure you have the right amount of money at the right time. Mm -hmm. It's just not my wheelhouse. Did not go to school for that. It was like, turns out that's really important. <laughs> um, and I'm just one person, like this is the whole company is just me. So I've finally got a bookkeeper and like, um, yeah. And it's just like, it's a wake up call when you sell out and then you're still broke. <laughs> it's like, I should probably do something differently. <laughs> like, <laughs> So, um, you know, maybe not making three quarters of your production into sparkling wine, like maybe only doing like a hundred cases of that. And like, you know, I'm only 800 cases total. So um, taking a look at your, at your numbers and saying like, oh, this wine basically makes me very little money. Um, these ones make me much more. And then like saying, okay, well, how do I keep the style? Like, how do I, how do, I do what I want to do stylistically? Um, you know, and like, I can't really blend that with that as much because that's got character that I want to keep really intact. Mm -hmm. But I also know that that makes me a lot more money than that does. Mm -hmm. Same with the 30 year old vineyard. Mm -hmm. So then also how do I allocate my time and resources towards, you know, towards that reality. And then where do I sell those wines? Like, can I sell a majority of the most expensive wine direct? Because then I will basically like triple my income if I just decide not to sell it to New York, where I make a sorry New York, like where I make a you know quarter of the of the money per bottle. Mm -hmm. So, like, that's very important. <laughs> um, like making good wine has been what I've been really focused on mm -hmm. um, the last few years, and like I've been staying pretty small. I only got this, you know, I started making wine in 2016, picked up this vineyard in 2020. Mm -hmm. So I was working with these tiny, tiny parcels all over the place, rehabbing vineyards. And then just, I was just so broke. I was like driving all the time, spending so much money on gas, you know, and these rehabbing places that were yielding like nothing. And then I had um, Saul Muchnick, who runs Championship Bottle, recommended, he was like, he's a really good friend. He's a mentor. He's like, have you ever considered like farming a place that actually crops well? <laughs> and like in one place, instead of having six acres spread in six in three different counties, you know, you know, do you have, do you know one five to six acre place that's cropping over two tons of the acre? And I was like, hey, actually, I do know a spot. Like I called Jerry like the next day, and then he was like, he was, I mean, he was pulling the trellising out when I called him because it's really hard to find farmers for places this small. Mm -hmm. 
And like, there's, you know, I mean, he planted at the peak of pricing and then it's just gone down since then and labor has gone up. So yeah, he's amazing. He and Pam, um, Pam, Jerry Drake and Jerry and Pam Drake, they're the owners here and they've been just so amazing to work with. I think that is a key point, part of the puzzle of doing this kind of farming where I'm leasing and I'm using their equipment, but they're also very conscious, like Jerry's very conscious of his responsibility as the permanent landowner to like, he fixes trellising and like, you know, he maintains the equipment. Um, it's just a super, super supportive relationship. I know he's really happy that I'm here. And I'm like, I am so happy that he's here <laughs> because a lot of owners, especially people that haven't gone, grown up on the land or didn't farm for a living, they don't understand how much work just goes into ma maintenance and that like I would be investing into his property, but without me seeing a return. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I, I already do quite a lot of that with like pruning. Like I don't, I don't get the maximum yields out of here. Like I try to prune according to vigor. Mm -hmm. um, I'm pretty crazy about it. And he's like, you should prune or get more crop. And I was like, I was kind of explaining like, like how I'm investing in the long-term health of his vines versus my yields. <laughs> and he like took a day and he was like, wait, I should be thanking you. <laughs> he came back the next day. He's like, I shouldn't be telling you what to do. You're, you're doing me a favor. And I was like, yeah, I am. <laughs> He's like, you need to be better about telling people that you're doing them favors. Like, so, yeah, I mean, I wish I wish everybody could find a Jerry Drake. Like, he's just an excellent human being, and I'm really lucky to be here. Um, and I think that that's also really good land stewardship as well. Um, you know, to the best of our abilities as white people on stolen land. <laughs> like, I don't know. So that's, yeah, that's, you know, it's something I think about a lot. And I try to encourage other people that are starting to farm to, like, put in place importance on who the person is that you're working with because mm -hmm. that really determines so much of your like quality of life mm -hmm. is not dealing with somebody that is you know somebody that you can talk to and like is is you know down to compromise and is not you know understands what kind of work and labor farming is because mm -hmm. it's so important so yeah that's kind of how I ended up so it's an interesting kind of vineyard model, right? Where you're you're doing the, you're doing the work and the and, and you're also making the wine from it. So it's something we're starting to see a little bit more of in small projects like yours. I'm curious for you, what is the what is the workload like? How do you sort of make make that work on an annual basis? And and what are the advantages that you found? Because the disadvantages are easy to do. So what are the advantages you found? Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, the workload is there. I mean, it's there's a reason a lot of people don't do it. Um, I mean, honestly, like the biggest thing I would say to make it work is getting, a, just trying to cut down your driving time. Mm -hmm. Like we drive so much and things are so far apart here. And like getting a cellar that's close to your home or close to your vineyard, I think is like really key. And I haven't, I haven't done that. This is the first year I will be with under an hour away from my cellar. Um, so you said the advantages, right? Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> um, I mean, I love farming. I love being in the vines. I think that's the only way I would make wine. Um, I purchased a little bit of fruit, but I, 
the the feelings that I have towards this fruit when it comes into the winery and like my understanding of the different parcels and my just this, how well I know them mm -hmm. is just so helpful for me in terms of like the decisions I make in the winery. Um, there's just no comparison to making like, you know, sample, you know, making even a once a month visit, like Antica Terra, their winemaking staff visits once a month or like once a week, I think they do a vineyard walk, but it's so different when you're actually, um, I mean, pruning is huge. It's like, it's basically like a health assessment on every single vine. Um, but I also, I just like, I like the work. I like, even when it's crappy weather, like, I mean, this is nothing, at least it's warm. <laughs> I still, I just, I like taking care of things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and yeah, you can have a lot of arguments and discussions about, you know, this plant and how it's been domesticated and, and overbred or, you know, inbred and, you know, how what we're doing isn't natural and it's not part of nature, but, um, you know, a, a huge thing that I'm trying to do is figure out that system, like, how to also make wine, but then to mimic that natural, the, a natural balance and, and understanding, how, I mean, it's just fascinating how that works and, like, the immune systems of plants and like the way that an ecosystem works it's all of it is just it's so cool and like it's such a it's such a privilege to be have access to that it's like just such a huge privilege um and i'm so aware of that mm -hmm. so i mean i don't know if that's an advantage i mean an advantage to the wine i don't know like i I think I just make the best wine I know how to make, but the being in the vineyard definitely helps me plan for that some. Um, but yeah, I don't know if that answered your question. We've made it this far in the interview without actually mentioning the name of your project. So you should oh, yeah. probably tell us about the, tell us about the name of your project. <laughs> Dasha wine? No. <laughs> uh, uh, so the farming arm is called Little Crow Vineyards, um, and I'm Little Crow Vit on Instagram. Um, which is where I do most of my sales communication. Um, and then the website is littlecrowvine.com. Mm -hmm. I'm starting a wine club. Um, Congratulations. This fall, thank you. Yeah, it's a long time coming. Um, which is very resistant for a long time, but I like, basically I like to throw parties and that's like a very good excuse to throw like vineyard parties and have people out and just, drink one and maybe like grill some food mm -hmm. um so um and then that yeah my wines are jess miller wines but the the, the sparkling is pet sounds mm -hmm. and the red that i make a lot of mostly from up there is called lbj and then the stuff from down below is called mermaid cafe it's Joni mitchell mm -hmm. reference and then the other vineyard that i have way out in the coast range is called sunny ridge mm -hmm. so that's like 30 year old vines really special site so, yeah, just changed ownership, so wish me luck. <laughs> that, the new owners seem nice, though. It's always something, something. So you've talked about sort of how the project has come to be. So tell me about 
where it's going and where where you're going, what you'd like to see kind of happen over the next few years and what, what the, I know you're not planning much, but what the plan is for down the road. I mean, the biggest thing I would say that I, what I spend a lot of time thinking about is soil health um, and um, like a lot of the things that Drew's been working over at JK Carrier, like I do as much as I can with the money that I don't have. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so, um, there's actually a biologist in your um, um, school, Jeremy, who's, who's been coming out and doing soil sampling for us, um, or for me, um, which was great, because I really wanted to figure out what my you know, fungal bacterial ratios were like here, and I don't have the money to do that. So I was like, hey, is there anybody that would be interested in this um, at Linfield? And you know, then I could see the data. Um, so the last, I guess it's almost three years now, he's been coming out and doing soil sampling um, and students have been taking, um, doing uh, microscope work, microscopic like, evaluation. So it's the Lane Ingram sort of model of um, just going in and like identifying fung fungi and bacteria and then giving you a ratio um, in your soil of what, where you're at, um, which is super interesting. So. I don't know. This is this is why I'm starting a wine club, <laughs> so I can have more money to do stuff like this. But um, we had a big snow, like ice storm, um, in February a couple years ago, and um, our, my neighbors here have a whole bunch of madrone trees, which madrones are like the only trees that, um, well, there's they're the one native tree to Oregon that um, are like superconductors for mycorrhizae. Like you can't plant them without soil that has mycorrhizae in it. So you usually have to plant them like together. That's how they grow best. So we had a ton of them come down in that February 21 storm where like branches came down, which is great because what you want is those like ramial wood chips. You want like teeny tiny um, branches because that's what's really a lot better food for the plants to eat. So I went to my neighbors. I loaded up my van with like a whole bunch of broken limbs. And then the wood chippers, you know, the Aspland guys were coming around because there's broken limbs everywhere. Mm -hmm. And when they were on our street, I like went over and I was like, hey, can I, get, can I buy you a bunch of beer and like you can just chip up some wood for me? Because <laughs> wood chippers, you couldn't rent them for like, yeah. you know, like four months they were, they were booked out. So um, they chipped up some wood. I held a like giant piece of plywood and, or like a, you know, plastic sheet and they like chipped it against me and it went onto our trailer. And so we have this giant, uh, Madrone wood chip pile over there, and I've been like, I've been like playing around with either. I put a little bit of it out into the vineyard, and then I also, I'd like to do like very long ferment, um, fungal dominant compost plants, and I'm trying to figure out ways to do them in the vineyard, like on a budget. Um, but I'm also co-planting quite a lot of things, so. Um, some fruit trees, a lot of natives, like I've done a bunch of, I've been trying to um, put as much, I'm, I'm not tilling here, right? You know, like you can probably see. It's, mm -hmm. it hasn't been tilled since 2018, I think, 2017, because it wasn't farmed for two years. It was like pruned, but not farmed. Um, so by the time I got it, this place was no-till, which works pretty well for the soils here. It's extremely water rich. Um, all of Parrot Mountain, like Carabella, Drew and I have talked about this. It's, you know, I'm not like a no-till 
proselytizer. I think everything is dependent on where you're at. Um, but here, I mean, like last year with all that rain that we had in the summer, I still had green grass when I harvested in September. I had green, I had green things growing. So there's, there's water here. Um, and so I've been overseeding, um, mostly natives mm -hmm. and, but then like just a ton of pollinator crops. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, that's what I, that was my big budget, like push last year was overseeding with that. This year it's probably going to be predator, predator mites because I, I had, you know, two, I mean, there's a lot of mites in the valley this year. I don't know if you've been hearing this, but there's a lot here. We got frosted really hard last year. Um, and that like really slow start to the spring season just gives the mites a giant foothold. So I, I put a bunch of predator mites out this spring when I noticed that the problem was gonna be really bad just in the upper block. And then I'm gonna do another round of them um, with this amazing woman up in the sound who's doing, um, what is it? It's called sound horticulture. Allison, I can't remember her last name. She's a friend of Rebecca Sweets from Buzz Seeds, but she's just a she's a bug nut. And so she talked to me about mice for like an hour and a half on the phone. <laughs> and there's all this like really cool um, research that's been done on, on, in cannabis, um, but it hasn't been applied to grapes very much. So we're working together, and I'm trying to get some more mites this fall because the the mite damage up there was. For like, I would say it's like understandably bad. I haven't been spraying for mites because I'm trying not to spray sulfur early season because I don't really want to wipe out my entire mite population. Um, but I totally, I have a complete imbalance right now. That's very obvious. So I'm just, just doing a lot of reading and like that's one example of sort of like the avenue that I'm trying to go with pushing integrated pest management as far as I can. And I mean, just also vineyard health, like this, it was so incredibly healthy this year. Like my mildew levels were like non-existent. I stopped spraying and the pump broke on the sprayer. So I stopped spraying like, when was the last spray? It was um, like June 7th, June 7th, June 7th or June 14th, which is crazy early. Um, and I was a little bit panicking about it, but like the, the vineyard was so clean. I was like, you know what? It took two weeks for the, the pump to even to get replaced. So I was like, you know what? It's clean. I just kept checking it. I just kept checking and walking the vineyard. And like now I have some upper level like mildew, but just like nothing that I would have expected. So I feel really good about the health of the vineyard and the resistance and the immunity so far mm -hmm. and yeah I just that's something I really want to increase is like those low vigor sections um, down below and they're they've just completely transformed in the last couple of years like I had major nutrient deficiencies the first year I farmed it I mean it was canopy was yellow like weeks before anywhere else mm -hmm. and now it's like Jerry keeps saying he's like it's so green down there it's like those vines are so happy and so just continuing to kind of dial in the pruning um, oh, and I grafted. <laughs> I did that too. I put some, um, so Saul Munchneck from Championship Bottle and I, um, we put some Rebola Jaw and some Tokai Friolano and some Aligote down there. Um, cause I don't know if you've noticed, but the climate's a little weird lately. I think it's probably not going to get 
much colder anytime soon. So, just, you know, a lot of the fruit, especially at the top up here, it's like I have 85 days from from flowering to like 20 bricks. Like it just the pomard up there just rockets. So part of what I'm trying to do for this site, you know, I don't know what the economic future of Oregon is, but I'm trying to put in things that will make somebody want to farm here. Mm-hmm. You know, because there is quite a lot of pinot. There's very little robola. Mm-hmm. There's like three places that have it planted. So I'm just trying to make it attractive and also like make it more economically sustainable for, you know, if I'm not farming here, you know, ideally these lines last 150 years. Whoever is here has a crop that is economically viable. Like not only can you charge a decent amount for the bottle, but maybe ideally your yields are a little bit higher than Pinot and it's a little bit more mildew resistant. Hopefully you're not having to spray as much, Um, you know, better for the environment. So this is kind of, I'm just trying to give back also to the lovely owners here that have helped me out a lot and, you know, add value where I can. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's kind of what's on deck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the last question for you then, you, you mentioned kind of initial impressions of Oregon. Uh, tell me about sort of finding your place here, finding your community and about where you see the industry heading next. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think that, um, you know, Oregon, especially compared to California, like there is a lot of drive towards quality here. Um, I wish you were on camera for that. You just (laughs) shook his head, it was like dripping with rain. (laughs) Um, I think that like financially, there's not the ability to commit to some of the like, more expensive vineyard um, or more risky winery practices. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's a really understandable reason that people would want to be more conservative. Um, Anybody that's been burned or had to dump wine is like, that was stupid. Or like, you know, you have to really want it. Um, I think even if you do have a lot of money, like, and there's just not a ton of money in this industry. I mean, maybe with like the giant people moving in here, Um, which I think is a little scary. Um, I think, you know, Kendall Jackson and, you know, we had like, what, three or four major conglomerates come in in the last year. Um, You know, Lingua Franca maybe trying to buy three quarters of the grapes grown in Oregon, which if they're actually trying to do the Chardonnay, then that's probably not gonna happen. Or that will happen because there's not very much Chardonnay, but um, you know, I think that there's a lot of room for small people like me. Like, there's a like a five or six acre spot is like, it's totally feasible. I mean, it's I would say it's totally feasible with the proviso that you should learn on a if you haven't farmed before, you should learn on a smaller site. If you haven't farmed by yourself, learn on a one acre site. Um, and then I had some friends in California also that almost they I had two people have total breakdowns and burnout trying to farm five acres because just and it's not even like the workload it's 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 being strategic about what you're farming when and noticing which sections are growing at a faster rate than others and then focusing on those sections and then and knowing what you need to do and what you don't need to do um or like what can wait how can you reprioritize where you're working and how much and then 
being flexible enough to change that plan on a daily basis. I'm talking just shoot fitting, the worst, you know, the worst or best time of the year. Definitely the most intense. But I think that like, I don't know, I think that this model is doable. I do believe like it requires maybe more financial sacrifice than I knew going into it. So I would say that as a heads up. Um, but I also think that like, if you're smart about your finances, if you have a spouse that works a day job, if you, you know, pay more attention to your, your P&L, your profit and loss sheet, if you do any of those things, like it's probably way more financially sustainable than the way that I've been doing it. But, you know, I think having the, either the sales experience or like having a sales outlet, um, is huge or having the willingness to reach out to people and learn the sales side of it so that you can get comfortable selling wine. Those are things that, like I would say, are necessary for this model because you do need to sell. You like, it's, I don't think I could survive if I sold only to California and New York. I just, I just don't, I wouldn't make enough money. Like I, I just, I wouldn't make enough money to like, you know, be off food stamps. So, but you know, there's a lot of sweat equity benefits, mm -hmm. you know, with this kind of way of doing it. Mm -hmm. If you can afford to live very cheaply until you get like a couple, a little bit more inventory under your belt, because the first couple of years are, are tough. And then, oh, and then there's a grant. There's a really amazing grant that I got. Um, should have mentioned this a while ago. Um, the, it's through the USDA. They have a value added producer grant. Um, and it can go up to 250000 if you have like a feasibility study from like a third party. And that's, I guess, what most people do is they do that. They do. And, there's a, and then there's a $50,000 grant. And what most people do is they use the 50, they apply for the $50,000 grant to get the 250000 But I was like, oh, I, don't, I only need 50000 That's fine. And so I applied for the 50000 and then made, when I made wine from this site, when I had that big jump, from like 200 cases to like, you know, 800 cases, 750. I used that $50,000 and it covers all of your production expenses. So it covers rent, it covers glass, it covers labels, it covers corks. No equipment, but all of the things that cost money, mm -hmm. other than equipment, if you're renting, it covered almost everything. So that, I mean, finding things like that or is, I mean, that's huge. I had no idea how much money I needed like, until I wrote that grant. And then like, I was like, oh, this is very expensive. <laughs> so yeah, that's me. <laughs> but I mean, I think most people have a little bit more business sense, I hope, um, going into something like this. I think it's, ne it's necessary. I think like the creative and the like, passionate and the heart, you know, like the, the, the interest in agriculture, the interest in wine is also very necessary. Um, and like, it's good to feed that. And like, I, I'm really happy with, I feel like I, I gave myself time to really focus on learning winemaking and learning farming before scaling up. Mm -hmm. So I think that that is a good, especially if you're coming from not having had that background I mean, I had one season in New Zealand farming and one season really pruning, and that's it. Mm -hmm. You know, and I had one r real vintage in America making wine, like a mini one in Italy. So, I mean, I think that I had to get that experience 
in order to then like be able to be successful taking on a larger acreage um, and make all those mistakes on a very small scale and then <laughs> hopefully not make them on a large scale. <laughs> it's going pretty well so far, so yeah, yeah. Well, that's fantastic. It's all the questions that I have for you. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have or anything we didn't cover that you'd like to cover? Oh man, no. My love of rain. Yeah, I, we chose the one rainy day in the last hundred days to sit out here. No, May, no rain in May, no, May, no rain in June. Very, very much wishing I had a change of clothes back at the office, but that's okay. We, 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 we muddled through on this rainy last day of August in 2023. Thank you so much Thank for you taking so the time much. to Thank share you. with us, to, to share your story, to share this beautiful site with us, and to share some rain with us. We'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Well, thank you so much for everything that you guys do. It's a, it's a real treasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University, with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.